0: I keep not actually asking you questions.
1: (laughs) I keep waiting for you to finish your point, hoping I'll have a response by then.
0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys podcast, where, as ever, the name is aspirational. I am Glenn Butler, and today we are going to be talking about WandaVision. Now, because we're not getting to this immediately after the show has finished, we are going to be doing away with our traditional non-spoiler segment. If you are interested in the show, please watch the show before listening to the rest of our show. I, for one, would recommend watching the show. I think we both will. And by that, I mean I am joined today by my brother Scott Butler. Scott, jumping immediately into spoilers, who's the villain of this show?
1: That is a very interesting question. You could make an argument that nearly everybody is the villain of this show. I was just going to say, there are a lot of options. But I think it's very interesting how, in their attempt to try to convince the audience that Wanda is not the villain of this show, they provide so many other purposefully worse villains. Yes. Wanda kidnaps a town full of 3,000 people and mentally tortures them while also kind of enslaving them, including locking up all the children. And then to try to make her seem not that bad, they also provide the guy who hates all the superheroes and the woman who tries to strangle the children because she's power hungry. Just to try to, like, here, hate these people, not Wanda. Wanda's not that bad. Yeah, there is
0: a real tightrope that the show tries to walk As far as the audience sympathy goes, because we can have all the sympathy in the world for Wanda as a character because of everything that she's going through and everything that she's gone through. And I think this show is a great examination of that. But also, I don't think it's possible to ignore the monstrosity of what she's done. I mean... A few movies ago, the Avengers fought a whole civil war over a mistake Wanda made, and then she goes and does this.
1: Well, that wasn't even a thing Wanda did, really. That was Wanda tried to prevent some terrorist from blowing himself up and only partially succeeded. Sure. That whole thing had the typical logic of political discussions in the modern era. Where apparently Secretary Ross's position was like, if Wanda hadn't been there to try to prevent that guy from blowing up the square full of people, then he wouldn't have blown up the square full of people.
0: Mm. And so, yes, they really emphasize sword director Squarejaw McWhite Dude and the rival witch, who's an even worse witch who apparently wasn't played by Anagastire, but I thought that at
1: first. They give it the old college try with how, like, she didn't do it on purpose at first, but, like, she's pretty clearly maintaining it on purpose later and trying to maintain it on purpose.
0: Getting more desperate all the time.
1: It's a very hard subject to address simply. Because she is acting semi-unconsciously out of just extreme grief and loss. So you could almost excuse that. But the way that she steadfastly tries to maintain her control over all these people and prevent all rescue attempts for the population she's enslaved, I don't know, it makes it very hard to just move past the wrongs that she's done. And is doing. Yes. I mean, however terrible the new director of the new S.H.I.E.L.D. replacement is, and however terrible the rival witch who strangles children and sucks the life energy out of people is, it's kind of hard to get past that.
0: It is very hard to get past that, even with an understanding of the extreme, extreme grief that she's going through.
1: Can we talk about the extreme, extreme grief she's going through? I very
0: much want to.
1: One of the problems with the series of Avengers movies is that it feels like there's too much of the story happening off screen. And that is showcased with the Wanda and Vision storyline. They both appear for the first time in Avengers 2 and have like barely any interaction as far as I recall. And then in Avengers 2 and a half, they're sort of friendly until Vision becomes a controlling paternalistic prick and Wanda literally crushes him into the floor. But then by the time you get to Avengers 3, now they're dating and everything's fine. Like, the fact that she literally crushed him through the floor in order to side against him in the titular Civil War, that's all water under the bridge, now they're dating. And then by the time you get to WandaVision, it turns out her and Vision is now the greatest love that was taken from her. And it just, like, jumps from point to point to point along that relationship development without ever showing any of the intermediate steps. We're just told they're dating now. And because they dated in the comic book, you just go, okay... And we're told, oh, they were deeply in love and were the most important things in each other's lives. And because that was true in a comic book, you just go, okay, even though none of the movies ever showed us that.
0: Yeah, a lot of that context is being imported. I, for one, left the theater after seeing Ultron thinking, that Vision character is really interesting. I'd like a movie about him. Oh, what are the next six movies they're making? Oh, oh, well. (laughs) Not that there weren't some good movies in those next six movies, but you get what I'm saying. And Wanda as well, obviously, like you say, a lot of those developments were off-screen. A lot of her characterization was off-screen, as in not present in the movies that she was in for the most part. And one thing that I think this show has really done well is to flesh out her character, is to give her more of a character character.
1: Yes, and the character they gave her is Old Sitcom's superfan.
0: Well, sure. <laughs>
1: they might have put a little too much of a hat on it, honestly. I mean, that is another thing that sort of comes out of nowhere. It's not like, I mean, was that hinted at in any of her previous appearances? Was she actually watching a sitcom when she was locked in her room in Civil War?
0: I don't recall, actually. I think they might have gilded the lily a little when the sitcom references went from references in the style of the shows and the dialogue and the sort of sitcom plots in the first several episodes to literal DVD sets. Like, it's fun to have an entire episode that's a pastiche of The Dick Van Dyke Show, and then an episode that's a pastiche of Bewitched, which is especially fun because they're both The Witch. When it goes from referencing those things to literally having a DVD set on screen, I thought that was making it a little too explicit. This isn't a serious criticism. It's just something that that stuck out to me.
1: Well, they had to provide an explanation of why her grief-induced psychosis resulted in reenacting sitcoms. Sure, and I get that as an element
0: of her grief, that that is something that she can retreat to. That was a pleasant memory for her until it wasn't, and might be one of the only pleasant memories for her until it wasn't. And one of the things that I think this show really gets right about her grief, about that extreme sort of grief, is that grief, I think, is a very selfish thing. I'm focused on the things that have changed in my life, the things that I have lost. And one of the things that you do in fiction, in franchise fiction, in superhero fiction is you take that sort of emotion and turn it up to 11 as an overblown demonstration. And so, sometimes, if you're focused too much on what's changed for me, what have I lost, what do I have to do, you use other people too much as a source for the sort of solace that you can't produce yourself at times. And if you're a superhero, and if those emotional elements are overblown, if you have the power to do so, maybe you kidnap thousands of people and torture them for a period of time. Again, I cannot
1: overstate the monstrosity of this. Well, here's the question, though. I mean, obviously, 3,000-some-odd people suffered greatly. Yes. What do you
0: do after that? I don't know. I don't know what anyone's next steps are.
1: Like, the show doesn't really address it beyond, like, she's gathered herself together and ended the spell. Which, you know, good, but... I mean, like, what do you do? Do you try to, like, charge her with a crime? Do you, like, try to issue some sort of punishment? What the hell sort of punishment do you issue for that sort of thing? If part of the point
0: of Civil War was that it was going too far to basically restrict Wanda to a very comfortable, well-fitted prison for what happened at the beginning of that movie, after this, someone has to ensure that she can't do this. Again, the show leans on audience sympathy and audience empathy And the inherent sense that we get as an audience that the protagonist of the show is someone to sympathize with. And so we're not necessarily left feeling like someone has to lock her up. Someone has to do something here. And obviously, I'm not going to carp for the carceral state. Obviously.
1: Yeah, but if you ask one of the neighbors, should someone stop her? Should someone lock her up? If you ask Vision's co-worker, should someone stop her? Should someone lock her up?
0: Right. They're going to have a particular perspective through their own trauma. Not to mention, everybody in the entire world by this point in the timeline
1: has already been through years of extreme trauma. Yeah, that's another thing that's kind of unaddressed. Out of these, like, three or 4,000 people that she takes hold of, Like, half of them just started existing again, right? I mean, they've just been through a super surreal series of experiences.
0: As a tangent, I'm glad the show took a bit of a detour to show the experience of coming back from that and some of the chaos and trauma of those moments, which were a bit more of a punchline in Spider-Man when they showed some of that. But, of course, these people have already been through all of this, and then they get kidnapped and mind-controlled and tortured. Nobody needs to airlift in military personnel. They need to airlift in therapists. I hope that's a point that's examined more. Some sort of, I don't want to say consequences, some sort of repercussions for Wanda after this. I hope her storyline going forward from here isn't that she took steps toward dealing with her trauma when she ended the false reality and set everyone free and left to read the Book of the Dead or whatever. I hope there's a reckoning with the emotional consequences of all this, the way that this show was a reckoning with the emotional consequences of everything that had happened to her in the movies. I'm not sure if the Doctor Strange film is going to be about this. I suspect it won't. (laughs) But at least now there's a lot more background and context for the fact that she's showing up in the Doctor Strange movie, now that she's in the exact same magical context. And Anna Gasteyer name-dropped the Sorcerer Supreme.
1: What color magic does Benihana Counterinsurgency use? Oh, man, that film was
0: so, so colorful. I think a lot of his magic was yellow. That was, what, ki mundi When you say that most everyone in this show can be construed as the villain, I think pretty much the only person who can't is the Vision. And I suppose the
1: kids. But mostly the Vision. Well, one of the Visions. Well, Okay. I mean, the evil vision is pretty definitely a villain, at least for a bit there.
0: Well, until the end of the Superman versus Clark Kent fight. Which, by the way, if in Superman 3, the evil Superman versus Clark Kent fight had ended with a debate about the ship of Theseus, I think that would have been a great improvement. <laughs> Maybe that would have been in the Donner
1: version. I don't think evil Superman was quite in the state of mind for that debate. Well, I'd like to see him try. What exactly happened with Vision at the end there? Because I thought one thing had happened, and then they manifestly showed that it did not, and so I'm confused. What was it that you thought? I was under the impression that, like, the reactivated corpse of Vision, with Wanda's Vision, supposedly was, like, restoring his memories, or, like... Restoring access to the data that was all of the memories of his life or whatever. And so, like, if you take the reanimated corpse of Vision and restore all of the memories of the person who was Vision, the result should just be Vision, right? Like, I was fully expecting that fight to end with, like, the Vision coming out of the wrecked building to help Wanda in the fight. Except that's not what happened. That Vision just sort of vanished somewhere, and all that was left was the magicked-up simulacrum of Vision.
0: Yeah, the, um, Vision the White is very much something that needs to be followed up on. I also had assumed that he might at least help out in the final battle, Because if his memories are restored, and if he is, as he says, he says he is the Vision before he flounces off, he should also have a devotion to Wanda, right? So we are told... It could be that because his initial state before receiving those memories was different than the original Vision or the Simulacrum Vision, because the Simulacrum Vision doesn't have all of those memories... So, it could be that the way that he was programmed initially when he received all those memories influenced the way that they affected him, and m- maybe he left to deal with that somehow.
1: Let me just say, I don't think it's a great idea to, like, take the reanimated corpse of the Vision and restore all of the memories of the Vision and just have the Vision back. Like, if you're going to kill off a character, just let them be killed, but When they brought up the reanimated corpse of the Vision and then said, I'm going to restore your memories so you remember being the Vision, I assumed that was just like their way of keeping Paul Bettany in the movies. Sure. If you had him get all of his memories restored and then just be the exact
0: same Vision, that's a little cheap. and You have to complicate it somehow. It's particularly unresolved, for sure. The other character I think I wouldn't really construe as the villain is Monica Rambeau, who is given a very sympathetic backstory as far as being our eyes into the moment of being unsnapped and all of the backstory that she brings into the show, as well as the fact that she basically wants to help for most of the time that she is in the show.
1: I mean you could make an argument for Monica Rambeau because she is the loyal subordinate of Squarejaw McWhite guy who's desecrating the corpse of the Vision and hates all the superheroes.
0: Well, she's only loyal to him for like an episode and a half. Yeah, that's true. You know, she's the loyal subordinate who figures out that the higher-ups are capital D doing
1: capital W wrong. Also, she has connections with people who can design an armored space rover and have it built in, like, a day. Like, Darcy says this is what you need in order to protect yourself from that kind of radiation, and Rambo calls someone, and, like, later that afternoon, she's got a vehicle (laughs) ready to go. I mean, those are
0: the sorts of resources that you can get, number one, in a superhero show, but also in... Fiction. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, a lot of the real-world scenes, aside from the Monica Rambo introduction and some of the scenes with Darcy later on, once they're not with Square Squarejaw McWhiteface, a lot of the other real-world scenes are the most boring scenes. Where it's just procedural stuff, where, like, other than the superhero stuff, you could take that out of an NCIS Des Moines script, you know? where they're calling up charts on their computer screens and enhancing and giving terse orders like a lot of that stuff like i get the point is that square jawed white guy is a villain i don't think we have to debate that but all of those scenes until rambo and darcy and the fbi guy struck out on their own were were too procedural for my taste, which again isn't necessarily an extreme criticism, but ooh, it's a thing.
1: Yeah, I don't really see the problem with that. That's part of how these shows go. People give orders, and people follow orders, and people examine the evidence to try to figure out what the fuck is going on. That's the plot of, like, 200 Star Trek episodes.
0: <laughs> well, not all techno babble is created equal. And not all of the context of Technobabble is created equal, but, you know, maybe there's an element of that in some of the less interesting, terse, military-speak scenes. But, regardless.
1: Yeah, this show did sort of fall down on the Technobabble. Like, I'm detecting an extremely high amount of cosmic microwave background. Like, no, you're not. That's not how the cosmic microwave background works. Maybe you think the
0: cosmic background radiation is how TV signals work if your knowledge of both TV signals and cosmic background radiation is the opening scene of contact? (laughs)
1: Like, if you're detecting an anomalously high amount of radiation, that's by definition not part of the cosmic microwave background. (laughs) Yeah. Did I miss it? Or was there essentially no follow-up about whoever it is that the FBI guy was actually there looking for that got them involved in this all in the first place? The witness that he was responsible for finding that was in the town when Wanda wiped it off the map? Did we ever find out who that was or where they were or are they okay? I don't think they ever
0: specified which resident of the town was the person from the witness protection program. Not that I noticed. I mean, he probably would have pointed them out if they were any of the people in the TV broadcasts, right?
1: Well, he might not have to, you know, protect their identity as a person in witness protection.
0: Maybe. I don't know how that works in terms of interfacing with other government authorities but I don't need to because I don't watch NCIS Dubuque. Let's talk about someone who is definitely, definitely, for sure a villain, and by the end, built up as the villain of the piece. Pietro?
1: Oh, God, yeah, he was horrible. Can I just say I loved that so much? Doing a fake Pietro and casting Evan Peters as Pietro... That is such a cool move to try to get the reaction out of the audience that you're looking for to cast Evan Peters as Pietro. A plus show. A plus there. Darcy's reaction. They recast Pietro was
0: amazing. That was very, very good. When Darcy showed up, I had said at first, man, they couldn't get Stellan Skarsgård, huh? but he could not have delivered that line that well. You you pointed that out, and you were right. So, Agatha the Witch, I think, really highlights the selfishness of what Wanda's been doing. Because her selfishness is basically her whole thing, right? She keeps drawing the power of others. She wants it all. She does that to the other witches in Salem. She tries to do it to Wanda at the end drawing everything into herself is her entire gimmick. So I think that was a well-spotted story element, because either Agatha's the sort of person who would never be connected to someone else enough to feel that sort of grief, or she's the sort of person who, if she did feel that sort of grief, would absolutely do something similar to what Wanda did, or maybe worse. Or maybe just wouldn't stop.
1: Well, she did say that the only reason she used an imposter Pietro was because she didn't have access to the corpse, and so necromancy wasn't an option. Mm Mm-hmm. What could she have done with the desiccated corpse of the Vision, then? Here's a question I had, and I think you could kind of view it either way. Do you think that in the scene where she was very young in Salem, And she was saying, please don't cast me out, just teach me how to be good and I can do that. Don't cast me out just because I have this one power that can be abused. Was she being sincere there or was she just sort of toying with them until she could suck out all of their life force? If at that moment the coven had decided, okay, let's take you under tutelage and teach you how to contain this power and not abuse it and how to do magic correctly and responsibly and without harming others, could she have, like, studied that and learned that and done that? Or was she already Agatha as she turned out to be at the end of the show?
0: You can definitely read it either way. I think from the look on her face when she started drawing the life out of her mother and the fact that she didn't have that grief reaction after she had killed her mother suggests that she was already not sincere about that.
1: Well, yeah, but that was after her mother had already rejected her pleas and decided to try to kill her. Or suck out her power or binder of power or whatever they were trying to do i think we're supposed to take it that agatha was always agatha and she was just sort of like toying with these people or like trying to trick them into letting her go or whatever but i think as depicted you could sort of take it either way That, like, she could have been good, she could have been normal, she could have been an asset to her coven and her community, but the coven cast her out because she had this power that they decided was bad and could not be allowed to exist. Which is sort of what she in turn does to Wanda when she realizes she's the Scarlet Witch. She says that Wanda has a power that's bad and that Wanda cannot be allowed to have. Of course, she doesn't try to eliminate it, she just tries to take it for herself.
0: I wonder also, and any fan of the comic books obviously already knows already, just like fans of the comic books probably already knew she was Agatha the Witch around episode 2 or before the show started, That is something that I actually wanted to mention. That is one area where I think I have a great advantage because I know almost nothing about the comic books. So I actually got that reveal as it was intended. Are there other covens that are still out there? Like those six witches in the flashback to Salem probably were not the only ones. Especially since there was the whole separate magical tradition that Bramble Pelt Candy Snatch inherited.
1: I mean, I guess probably.
0: I suppose what I'm wondering is, does Disney own Charmed? Does Disney own Bewitched, by the way, and the Dick Van Dyke show? Maybe that's too much of a side point. But yeah, I suppose I'm wondering what sort of magical community there still is for Wanda to fit into.
1: Well, apparently the magical community isn't real fond of witches like her. I suppose. Like, even the evil soul-sucking witch decided that she was an abomination that could not be allowed to exist.
0: Well, the evil soul-sucking witch decided she had a soul she wanted to suck. And by the way, I know this entire show was chock-a-block with references and easter eggs and stuff, but one thing that I think is kind of neat when you think back on it in retrospect is... Once you find out that Agatha actually wasn't under Wanda's control all along, you think back about her in all of the previous episodes, and I'm pretty sure she kept doing the same hokey, old-timey voice in all of the different time periods in a way that not all of the other cast members did. Like, I think the other characters adjusted to the 60s sitcom, the 70s sitcom, the 80s sitcom more than she did in terms of, like, the tone of her voice. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's true. Also, you notice that she's always digging for information. Anytime she talks to Wanda or Vision or the kids, she's always, like, asking questions and digging into their background.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And trying to subtly tip Vision off. Like the scene in the Family Ties episode where she just stops entirely and acts like Wanda is the director on the set.
1: Well, if you want to talk about, like, bullshit comic book Easter eggs. Well, let's not necessarily judge. I think it's cool that they do stuff like that, but I find the overly obsessive focus on that aspect a little much. But. I did find it interesting that in the Family Ties episode, when Wanda started doing magic in front of Agatha, and Vision was like, we're trying to fit in, you can't just do magic in front of her, it's going to tip her off, and Wanda's saying, well, I'm sick of hiding, I don't want to hide who I am anymore, I want to be myself. Which is basically the same argument they had in Captain America Civil War. Where Vision was like, you know, the people are afraid of you right now. You need to lay low and stay here at the compound and not, like, agitate them until the Fuhrer dies down. And Wanda says, I can't control their fear. I can only control my own. And I don't want to be afraid to go out and live a life. It's basically the same point carried over. And if you want to get super obsessive about the thing that everyone on the internet is super obsessive about in relation to the Marvel movies... That's also a philosophy that's shared by a certain character that Disney owns now that used to be Wanda's father. Yeah. Seriously, I get people are excited about it, but it crossed over from annoying into like almost farcical how like every episode that was released... Here are all the easter eggs in the latest WandaVision episode that suggest how the X-Men are going to enter the Disney MCU. They published that article after every episode. And it was always a different theory. This particular collection of scenery details from episode one suggests that they're going to do this with the X-Men. And then they published that exact same article after episode two, except with a different set of scenery details and a completely different theory about what they're doing with the X-Men. And it's like, geez, do you think some of this stuff in the WandaVision show might be about WandaVision and not about the (laughs) X-Men?
0: Yeah, that's definitely going to be a focus for a lot of people, and there are probably more clickbait articles than there need to be about it. Of course that gets published every week.
1: Yeah, but they're all full of nonsense. And the fact that they do a new one every week with a completely new theory every week... And every week they have new little details that suggest a completely new theory that has nothing at all to do with last week's theory and will have nothing at all to do with next week's theory. It's like, just say we don't have a clue what the fuck they're doing, let's wait and see what happens. I don't understand.
0: Well, that doesn't fill your quota of clickbait articles. Oh, excuse me, that doesn't fill your quota of clickbait listicles.
1: One thing I saw someone point out, and I do agree with this, is that there are often shows where, like, when details leak online of what they're going to do, they, like, try to, like, cover it up and misdirect people to try to, like, preserve a surprise or something. Oh, God. Uh-huh. Oh, no, we're not doing that. No, no, no. It's not that at all. No, we're, we're doing this other thing that has nothing to do with that. Yeah, Khan isn't in our movie. Yes, that's a very good example. When they said they're doing a show focused on Wanda and one of the characters is another woman named Agnes, like, everyone said, oh, I bet that's Agatha Harkness. And, like, every article on the internet was like, that's probably Agatha Harkness. And every fan theory was, that's probably Agatha Harkness. And Marvel didn't put out, like, a whole press blitz about how, no, this is certainly not Agatha Harkness, this is Wanda's friend Agnes. And they didn't, like, hastily rewrite the show so that it no longer lined up with the spoilers that everyone had figured out. They just put out the show that they planned out and wrote and produced. Because that's the way they wanted the thing to be, and so that's the way it was. And who cares if a lot of people guessed at the identity of a particular character? It still worked in the story when she was that character. So don't go on some, like, bullshit press tour of bullshit trying to convince people that what they already know is not actually true so that you can get to the actual show and reveal, what? Oh, it turns out it is true! <laughs> Aren't you fooled? And the comparison to Khan in Star Trek Into Darkness is a very, very, very apt comparison. I could not have come up with a better one.
0: Although I suppose if they had gone ahead and rewritten the movie. (laughs) 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 But no, if you have a show that you're confident in with a storyline that you're confident in, let that be a lesson. Just make a good show. If they guess it, they guess it. It's okay. They're talking about your show. Let's talk briefly about the music for this show. Obviously, the sitcom theme song pastiches are very prominent and there's also the score by Christoph Beck. Uh Scott, what did you think about this?
1: I like the score. I think it's a good score. And at the moment, I am singularly unable to really examine it and analyze it the way it deserves, because I'm still kind of all scored out from doing the Oscar shows. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, more specifically, the uh, other scores show. I just got done listening to 50 2020 scores, and so I need to sort of, like, rest and recharge the part of my brain that analyzes scores... I mean, this score is obviously really good. It obviously has a few themes in it that even I noticed in my diminished state. I don't know that it has any really, like, standout individual cues other than the end title track version of Wanda's theme. showcases like that that i noticed or that i remember but i think this score is really interesting in the way that it's built like the way that christoph beck designed it and put it together yes I think for a person that's going to listen to this album several times and get like way into it and figure out all of the themes and where they're used and how they're used and how they're played off each other and then watch the show a couple of more times to figure out exactly where each piece of music is placed relative to what's going on on the show and what's going on in the story... Someone who's going to, like, dive into it like that to try to puzzle out exactly what each piece of music is doing and how it's playing off of other pieces. That person is going to find a lot to dive into in this score. That person is going to have a whole lot to chew on when they try to examine this score. And that person is very much not me right now. I am not currently capable of giving this score the kind of in-depth analysis that it really does deserve. Because it is really good. But I'm not able at the moment to really analyze it beyond that. (laughs) It is assembled very thoughtfully. There's an
0: integration of the music for the more sitcom-style scenes, especially toward the beginning of the show with the more straightforward score for some of the more emotional pieces. At the end of the first episode, when Wanda creates the rings, the cue for that scene is very much a pastiche of the old sitcom music with the heavy, kind of syrupy strings. But it's introducing the love theme that's going to be elaborated on later in the show. Wanda's theme, similarly, comes in a lot toward the end of the show, when she's using her powers more demonstratively.
1: Yeah, all of the music sort of develops over the course of the show, from the beginning, where it's very much in the style of a sitcom pastiche. Until you get later in the show, where the action is more divorced from the sitcom framing. And so the music becomes more standard, cinematic, symphonic scoring. Yeah, exactly. It grows. But a lot of those same tunes and themes are present in the sitcom pastiches. I find very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think
0: the score worked very well with the formatting, even on a technical level, of the picture. The aspect ratios, the framing, the video effects that were put on to shift at times between... Not just the real world scenes, but the TV style scenes and scenes in the TV sets with everyone in the TV world, but that were framed and shot like real world scenes. The the score very much moved with those sorts of shifts and that sort of tension to really support all of the dynamics at play there. That, I think, was very, very well done. And there are some standout cues, especially later on. Obviously, the score gets a chance to get a little broader, a little more powerful. The last flashback in the Wanda Maximoff This Is Your Life episode, when she creates the entire TV world, that I think is a standout cue. With, again, Wanda's theme, and then almost like a reintroduction of the love theme when she creates the simulacrum vision. So there's definitely a lot to chew on there, for sure. That'll do it for us on WandaVision. We'll be back soon with our take on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at Fanboys on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at nontoxicfanboys at gmail.com or visit our website at nontoxicfanboys.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash non-toxic fanboys. My other podcast is called Feeling Good For Now and features nuggets of positivity as well as spectacular advice in response to listener questions. You can find that at bit.ly goodfornow now and please send any and all advice questions to spectacularadvice at gmail.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Details are in the episode description.
1: Other music in this episode comes from the score to WandaVision, composed by Christoph Beck, published by Hollywood Records, and excerpted here for the purposes of review and critique. A full list of tracks cited can be found in this episode's description, and if you liked what you heard, links to buy the albums can also be found there. Thank you all for listening, we will see you next time.
0: Dick Van Dyke Show was made by CBS and Desilu. Well, it was shot at Desilu. So, I mean, that should be Viacom, you'd think. Yeah, probably. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, how often does Disney reference something Disney doesn't own? Disney usually buys the things it wants to reference, right? <laughs>